Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. On today's podcast, we have Susan Hobbs, partner at Crunch Fund. She's calling us from the West Coast, and I'm really excited to hear her story. It's a very rich story because she has a very interesting career. She started off in academia and then moved on to things like marketing, biz dev, and now she's an investor. And you know, it's always great to hear these kinds of transition stories, so I'm looking forward to hearing it. So welcome to the podcast, Susan. Thanks, Carlos. I appreciate it. So let's start off chronologically. What is it that made you go into teaching, and, and what was that first few years right after college when you were working as a teacher and what was that like and and what did you learn from that so I always knew I wanted to be a teacher like that was my thing (laughs) from from an early age I was like certified in infant child CPR at age 14 I started teaching Sunday school like every kind of after school job I had to do you know had to do with like caring for for children. So it was like, that was definitely my end goal. And, uh, you know, so that's what I went to school for. And when I started, I started at a time in California where they had decided that, um, at least for the younger grades, that they should go to a smaller ratio of kids to teachers in the classroom. So I actually started teaching in a suburb of Los Angeles um, right when they started the 20, 20 to 1. And uh, but they didn't have the space to <laughs> to to accommodate what they were planning on doing. And I worked in a, a school that was year round that actually had um, what they called roving tracks. So every month that you head off, which was every three months, somebody else would move into the classroom. So literally all classrooms were in use. So we threw up some uh, bookshelves between myself and another teacher, and that was that was my first year teaching, and uh, it was loud. <laughs> loud, and uh, I'm presuming stressful. And yes. how long were you a teacher for, I mean, across all the different roles that you had in schools? I mean, let's see, I probably taught for um, post, like, having a, a credential I think I taught for like six or seven years, but with everything I had started even down to, like I was an assistant teacher in college. Um, in the United States, we we have in primary education, we have grades uh, kindergarten through sixth grade, and I taught each of those grades in some shape or another, except for fourth. Wow, that's a variety. Now, I heard an interesting fact, uh, I think I read it somewhere, but it was around the careers that people have that generate the best dinner conversations. Turns out that the the job that has the least dinner conversations or paralyzes people when people say that this is what they do is engineer. So if you say, hi, I'm an engineer, most people in a dinner conversation don't know what to say to you. However, it turns out the number one is teacher. And I think it's because we all have anecdotes to share about our days with teachers. And if you had to sort of share maybe some anecdotes that you think are relevant from from lessons that you've now applied in your role as an investor, what what do you reckon the, the top two or three things are that, you know, teaching taught you that you're now using to, to maximum effect with, with either founders or or as an investor? Well, I think the biggest thing is you know, if you ask yourself, how does a kindergarten teacher become a venture capitalist, <laughs> which sounds so very, very strange when, when you put it that way, um, I think it's it's learning to be on your toes and work in an environment where you're a generalist. So when you're teaching something like elementary education, you have to be a bit of an expert at everything because you cover everything. You're not going deep onto one subject. So you really kind of have to have a renaissance education yourself where you have to be insatiable with learning and really want to know things. Um, And that's what I think really, really leads and it is the crossover between teaching and and investing in what I do now. Hmm. And and a lot of patience, probably. Patience, absolutely. Um, When it comes to dinner conversations, my, my last year that I spent quote unquote teaching. I was, I was working for um, 
a, a grant in Arizona and I taught uh, sexual education to kids who were on probation or in jail, uh, that always strikes up a great dinner conversation or freezes people one way or another. <laughs> so, can imagine. So, you said the last year was in Arizona, and you know you moved on to to Cody. And walk us through why you left something that was so passionate, you know, for six years prior, mm. and then moving on to something entirely unrelated and starting effectively the the first stepping stone towards where you are today. What? Well, why that transition? What was going through your mind? when you made that, that transition? So it, it was more than just a professional transition. It was a geographic transition. Uh, so I had come back from Arizona to, to California, um, to Del Mar, uh, which is in Southern California specifically, kind of near San Diego. And um, from there, I, I came home, essentially. So I grew up in the Silicon Valley. So people would always kind of wonder, how does a, a teacher go into startups? And for me, it was it was just kind of doing what I, I had been surrounded by my entire life. You know, my dad had been a founder. My dad was an engineer. He'd worked in semiconductors, um, you know, for, for my whole life. And uh, when I came back to, to Northern California, unfortunately, my father had passed away um, from cancer, but... I kind of found my love in what his passion was and and that was in in technology and it was almost by accident um, how I got a job in in a startup was uh, I was trying to decide what I wanted to do you know I'd been back here for a little while and um, I had gone to a Halloween party with uh, that was at a, a friend's house and I knew nobody there but her. And, um, you know, I met her husband. I met a bunch of their friends. They were all, uh, you know, in tech. Some of them had sold their startup to Google. This was like, you know, back in the like 2004, 2005, something like yeah. that. And so I met all these really neat people. Most of them were British. And I don't know, like... Maybe it was a month later. I can't even remember how long. Oh, no, it was probably a little longer. Uh, I was deciding that, you know, maybe I wanted what I thought was would be a nine-to-five job, right? Yeah. So I go find a technology nine-to-five job. But, you know, teaching really required every bit of me all the time. Um, at least I felt like it did. And so I, I called um, my friend's husband and I said, hey, you know, I know you've got your startup and you guys are doing your thing, but do you have any friends who might be interested in somebody like me? And, uh, and he was like, well, actually, you know, I think your skills might might match what we're doing. And so I came down and met them and uh, that started my career in, in the exciting hardware world of video conferencing infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, and you were there for a while, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, so at the time, the, uh, well, there were always just three founders. Uh, there were three founders of, of Codian, and uh, two of them were in the London area, and one was, was out here in San Jose. And so we started the office here, um, just just him and I. And by the time that you, you left Codian, it's, it sounds from from you know the the title that you were pretty much heading up a lot of the sales and marketing I not I wouldn't say that I was heading up sales and marketing when I left um, I certainly had had my my moments in it um, you know when I started it was like actually our CEO was covering sales in in Europe in EMEA and um, you know and I was working on the rest of the world <laughs> with will <laughs> so you know so I, I started talking to people in Japan and in Hong Kong and started making relationships and eventually those would you know got passed off as as you do when you're you know when you're in a startup and you have 13 people and then you grow to 20 people and then you grow to 50 people uh, you know you have to hand over responsibilities to to others yeah. So with that experience under your belt, there is probably a lot of lessons learned about managing, scaling, uh, sales mm -hmm. engineering, uh, and a sales management and a marketing uh, organization within a startup. What can you share about 
maybe the lessons that you have gained from, from that period? I mean, certainly from the beginning, I would say that the biggest thing I shared was, was to try everything. Um, we used to send out the, these uh, trial units of, of the product that we made, which was an MCU. And, you know, we would have to reprogram it and stuff to, to send it out. And, and initially, um, you know, Will would do that. And then I would gather everything together and handle all the other stuff. And one day he turned to me and he said, you know, there's no reason why you can't do this. And so he taught me how to, to program the unit to, to go out. And so, you know, you just start picking up these skills as long as you're willing. And I think when you're in an early stage startup, it's kind of all hands on deck, do everything, you know, whether it be fill out the FedEx form or, you know, learn how to program a, a, a unit to, to go somewhere or talk to somebody, uh, you know, across the world. And so I think that those kinds of things really helped inform for as things went on. And, and as we began to scale, then sharing that information um, with the people who are going to take over. And I think the biggest thing is if you're moving from being one of the first people in a startup to being in a startup that, you know, grows to 200 people, is being able to let go of the things that, that you did in the beginning. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things to do. And how, in the process of letting go of things, one of the things I discovered other startups do is create onboarding process for new hires that replicate mm-hmm. some of that stuff and in, in other cases kind of give give authority for new people to come up with new processes. What? Wh- how would you describe the onboarding process that you guys had by the time that you left? Oh, gosh. That's so long ago. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. <laughs> um or maybe you didn't have one. I don't know. Maybe that's. I don't know that we really had one. Uh, so these guys that I worked with, this was their third startup they had done together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of it was just bringing on people that they had worked with in the past. So there was almost already an understanding and a knowledge of how things would go. And it's like, okay, well now let's apply it to to this other bit of technology or this other product. Yeah. Um, one of the I, I can tell you somebody who who I really respect in the way that they handle it uh, would be Matt Mullenweg at, at Automatic. Uh, you know, with their dispersed workforce, even if you start it over there working at Automatic and at WordPress, your first two weeks, regardless of what role you're brought in at, is spent in customer service. Hmm. And they have just found that that for their product is the best way a to learn and to understand how it works, mm-hmm. and then to really understand and know their customer. And that helps if you're an engineer who's building that product, if you're somebody who's selling that product, if you're marketing it, you know, it, it, it goes on on all ends. So I, I think that uh, that's, that's one example that I found that I, I really respect. Yeah, and, you know, it, it sounds like a lot of that... Um is is something that we could all learn uh, from, but also it sounds like some of that was intrinsic within your founding team at Cody, just because they had worked together. Um, and when you left Cody, and what what did you end up doing? <laughs> um, I always joked around. I would say either that I retired or I got a life, because <laughs> I one thing I learned pretty quickly was that. Uh, that it, it wasn't leaving teaching that would keep me from working outside of what people would call normal business hours, but it was just myself. <laughs> and, and joining a startup is not the best way to, to try and work nine to five. Yeah. Um, it, it was one of those things where I was doing something that it didn't matter if it was Monday or if it was Friday or if it was the weekend. Like I was so passionate about it and enjoyed it so much that like just every day was super fun. Um, but in that, you know, my, I would say my personal life suffered in, you know, somewhat because I was very absorbed and wrapped up in, in work and, and what I did. So I, I spent, gosh, almost two years, I say, uh, volunteering and, uh, quote unquote, getting a life, (laughs) (laughs) which of course led me to my next startup. (laughs) Which was then Coach Week. 
Yeah, yeah. I had I had full intention of going and working for like Cisco or something that was was big. I wanted to see the brown spots on the other bit of grass. Why do people come from big companies to startups? Uh, that was my intention, and you know, I landed right back in a role, you know, being number seven at a company. Uh, you know, first non-engineering hire, first woman. You know, kind of. Same, same thing over again, very, very different stuff because it was software as a service. Hmm. Maybe let's take a, um, a, a strategic pause on that transition that you went from Cody into Kotui um, and sort of the need maybe in some cases for people to take a break. You know, that there's been a lot of talk about uh, burnout and mental health uh, in, in our industry. And um, what, what do you think um, or what have you seen uh, today uh, that works really well for, for people to be able to manage the stress that comes with being in a startup because a, a lot of it, especially for the founders, it can be quite overwhelming. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I have the best advice for that. And I, and I think I f- would feel differently than I did back then, you know, just between maturity and, and time that goes by and, and, and things like that. I, I will say I was in a position where I was working at a startup where, you know, we weren't just profitable. We were cash flow positive. Um, We were backed by our founders. Um, We didn't have venture capital backing. Uh, They, you know, they they consistently talked to venture capitalists in case, you know, we ever got in a position where we would need to. And actually we did at at some point um, got into a place where uh, we had moved up in the the video conferencing world that we were a threat to the number one and uh they they did that patent trolling thing and tried to sue us in out of existence in a court in texas and uh at the same time they were you know courting us to buy us and it was all very very strange um so that company actually sold I think sooner than than we had all intended because we'd all intended to like kind of stick in until we went public but it was a you know it was a big decision like do you sell the company and still work on it do you sell part of the company to investors like what do you do and so when I came out of it uh you know we had had an exit and so that afforded me the opportunity to to take a break and not everybody has that that chance, you know. Many startups don't make it, and and so, you know, having the resources to be able to to take a break are, don't always exist. Mm. And um, so I think that you just have to find your space and all of that. That you know, f- take a step back and figure out for yourself mentally, like what. What do I need to be able to sustain myself and keep going? Um, when you're a founder, you have to sometimes, if you're answering, you know, a tweet at 2 a.m. or a customer service email or, or whatever, you have to stop and think to yourself, is the world going to burn down right now? Or, you know, would it be better if I actually get some sleep and tackle this in the morning? And I think that's that's one of the, the big things that founders have to, to make that decision every day especially early on. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a, a track record of companies being acquired because if, if I understand they correctly, do. CoTweet you know, was acquired by Exact Target. Um, yeah, they, and my, my track record is actually acquired twice. <laughs> so Codian, Codian was acquired by Tanberg and then acquired by Cisco, although I wasn't there for that part of the acquisition. And... CoTweet was acquired by Exact Target, for which I was there, um, went public, and then was acquired by Salesforce. By the time they were acquired by Salesforce, I was at TechCrunch, which had been acquired by AOL and subsequently acquired by Verizon. So, yeah. so you've definitely, I think you're a catalyst, basically. <laughs> I, I think I want you to work with all our companies so they all get acquired. How about that? Um, <laughs> yeah. What, what can you share with us as key lessons learned? about a company going through a potential acquisition? I mean, you've seen it so many times now. What are the things that you, you even if it's not necessarily from the, the founder's point of view through like a, in the negotiation, but from like what works well in terms of an integration or due diligence or from the point of view that you had? 
Um, never leave very smart people. This is actually uh, not for the startup so much as for the acquirer. But never leave very smart people with nothing to do. Because they will very quickly get bored, especially if they're entrepreneurial, and they will leave you and start something else. I think that's that's one of the the biggest things that I would I would say for for that. So often, I feel like it's hard for these companies to, especially when they're buying a product, and and not it's not like a an aqua hire to integrate them into into what they're doing. And and I feel like there are some companies who've done that well in recent years. Um, I think Facebook has done that well with Instagram and with WhatsApp really leaving um, those those companies pretty autonomous. I, I think that Salesforce did, um, from what I can tell, obviously I'm an outsider on both of these, uh, but I think they did well with Heroku, mm-hmm. letting them continue to, to run and, and do their thing and innovate um, because that's what they paid for, right? They're, they're looking for that innovation. Um, so, so, yeah, so I think that that's, that's a, a, a big thing. And then if you're coming at it from the startup's perspective, it's really hard to integrate your small company culture into a much larger company. And I think that then I would just say patience and a persistence to share what's important to you are the the two things that I would recommend. Yeah. No, I I can imagine that is something that, Acquires need to keep in mind, and and probably many of them don't. I mean, I've heard anecdotes of people, yeah, feeling feeling completely left out post acquisition. So that that all makes sense. And that transition, where, did you leave uh, shortly after that acquisition to go to TechCrunch, or or was it slightly uh, before? It was it was less than a year, and um, actually, I would say almost our entire founding team left. Oh wow! It was the first product that they had acquired, and so I think there was just a, a learning curve on both sides. That probably some of the nicest that management team was probably some of the nicest people I've ever met. Hmm. Um, but we were in San Francisco, and they were in Indianapolis, and uh, you know, it was it was hard. It was hard. It wasn't the right time for you, maybe. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, you look at our biggest competitor. Um, who, you know, at the time, <laughs> I will selfishly say we were handily, you know, beating in the market, uh, has, has grown to a, a pretty big company. And it's, it's really cool to see how well they've done and, uh, and, and that they still exist. Cause I mean, you know, Kotweet doesn't exist anymore. Hmm. Well, Let's let's walk through your TechCrunch days. I mean, I I think that's where where we met. Um, where yeah. a, a lot of the things that you were doing at TechCrunch, helping build out the European presence of TechCrunch, and mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of the good work that you guys have done there and continue to do there. Um, what what was that like? I mean, you were clearly moving away from the, the sort of sales and then biz dev in a startup now to a large service uh, for startups. In effect, the news service and the events service into your directorship in global programming. Walk us through that transition, because it feels like that is definitely a transition in terms of role, even if it's within this, the realm of startups. Yeah, I'd also been spending a lot of time on product, and that was probably my my biggest love in in anything I did prior to to being at TechCrunch was, was uh, working in product. Um, but when it came to, to coming to TechCrunch, uh, Heather Hardy was the CEO at the time, and um, she was looking for somebody in the role that really understood what it was like to be inside of a startup. And because I had certainly done that, um, you know, I kind of fit in that way. And when it comes down to programming, I would say again, leaning on uh, my my teaching, it it was almost like looking at something and saying, what do I want the community to learn this time? And that's kind of how I would approach each disrupt. What do I want them to learn? And so there's there's two paths to disrupt. There's the, uh, you know, the fireside chats and the panels and the things like that. And that's the, what do I want people to learn? And then there's the startup battlefield, which is, you know, hey, here's 
the you know cutting edge companies that are just beginning and going to launch on our stage that we've found and work with and you know help them get their presentation in order to be able to kind of unveil themselves to the world and so so it was kind of a, a, a two prong position in, in, in that sense of, of looking at, at what the content was for the for the entire event. Yeah, I know that makes sense how you leveraged your background to sort of curate the content and it you know it was very applicable. So you know that was a, a period where you probably really brought together a lot of those two things, you know, from your background. Mm -hmm. And and as you were saying earlier, before we were catching up that, you know, it seems like a lot of these things almost fit perfectly together now when you look back at them. Um, And then you moved on to YC to, to do not necessarily as a news organization, but in terms of programming and events. And, you know, Mm -hmm. YC is an organization that has some level of, of complexity because it, as I understand it now, there's multiple different entities and funds. And then there's also a huge amount of founders that come in every year. Maybe walk us through some of the, the sort of thinking behind how you approached the programming and events for YC having left TechCrunch. Yeah, I was, um, you know, I was really thinking about doing something entirely different. And um, I met with Jessica one day and she was like, wait, don't move. <laughs> she went and got Sam and she's like, come and do stuff with us. And, uh, you know, we had all these really neat, crazy ideas, very global, um, which subsequently have um, a lot of them have been put into place. And so so coming into to Y Combinator was basically taking a lot of the things that I would think about at TechCrunch and making them private almost. Um, there are events that Y Combinator does like Startup School and uh, Female Founders Conference that are are open to, you know, to founders that are out in the public. But mostly what I was doing was was for the YC founders that were, were in the batch. And so um, it, it was kind of fun to, to take that and basically when you juxtapose that, take a juxtaposition of that with uh, a news organization, everything then became off the record. So I could talk to many of the same people who I had worked with in the past, but bring them into a space where they could speak with founders, but, uh, you know, it wouldn't end up in the news. So they could really kind of lay bare their uh, mistakes or things that they had come across that could possibly help somebody else in the future. While at TechCrunch, because it was a very public organization, there were probably ideas you had about how you could help founders. And then mm. within the confines of YC, where it was more of a Chatham House rules or where you were working individually, companies, you had more flexibility on things or programs or questions or issues that you saw founders suffering through and that you could address more specifically. What what were those, if you can highlight them? I mean, it, it really was about getting down to, to more specifics. When you're talking about disrupt, you're talking about, you know, thousands of people that are present in the room uh, physically in that, in that space, as well as others on the live stream. And when you talk about what we were doing at Y Combinator, while Y Combinator has grown, you know, you would absolutely max out at, uh, you know, 300 founders in a room of, you know, 120 companies. So taking and looking at what could be helpful for those specific founders is, is kind of where, where it would come from. Um, so whether it be the line of questioning that would be asked if we were doing a, a like a fireside chat style um, or just allowing those people to, to ask questions. So that might be in the case of, of a big thing like a dinner where everybody's there. Then we would, you know, take and look at very narrow verticals. So like what is it like to sell B2B and provide them with usually YC alumni who were quite successful at that um, but had come to their own bumps in the road to get together with, you know, maybe 20, 25 founders and go through those different things. Um you know, what is it like to interact with the press? What is it like to uh, pitch your company to investors as a female founder? You know, we 
we would always have uh, Aileen Lee come in and speak about that. And I expanded that to a few other investors and actually some, some YC alumna to, to be able to talk about that experience and, and kind of like get everybody ready. Interesting. Now, your trajectory brought you back into investing from the point of view of um, leveraging the TechCrunch experience, uh, the TechCrunch brand into now the Crunch Fund, which uh, for those that are not familiar with it is a sort of an offshoot. Um, and you brought with it that experience as a as a effectively a, a operational expert within the startup world, the experience that you picked up during your YC years, um, and now a year in, what's it like? Well, um, you know what Crunch Fund and TechCrunch have in common is is a co-founder. <laughs> so uh, Michael Arrington founded TechCrunch and co-founded Crunch Fund with uh, Patrick Gallagher, who is my partner there, and. Uh, it's the fund is, is five years old now. And um, so, so as far as like it, it, people do get confused <laughs> because of the crunch name and think it's part of TechCrunch or Crunchbase or, or whatever. And, and it's not, it's basically the, the way the story goes is, is while they were raising the fund, uh, they didn't have a name for it. And uh, when they would go around, people would just call it the crunch fund and then it just kind of stuck. So, uh, so, so hence the name, but as far as bringing those experiences into, to what I do now, um, I kind of stay taken a step back and, and said like, you know, what, what do I want to do? Um, you know, do I want to go back into product or do I want to, uh, you know, help founders as they're, as they're starting their companies with the expertise that I have? And uh, it was actually a conversation with Sam Altman that, that really kind of like solidified it for me. Um, so I, I give him some major credit there because he would watch me. Um, he'd watch me interact with the companies. Um, while at YC, I worked with um, his group in the last batch that I was there. And he said, you know, you just really like helping founders. You really just like helping people. Why don't you just go and invest? It was a very matter of fact, like, why don't you just go do this, Susan? <laughs> and uh, and it was nice because it kind of gave me that pause to say, like, yeah, that is actually what I, I would like to do. And, you know, and started thinking about that and thinking about who I knew, who was doing that, who I um, really liked and respected. And, and that's kind of how I ended up where I am now because, uh, you know, Pat Gallagher really exemplified that. For me, I had, you know, watched him for the the five years previous. I guess we're six years old now, almost. As as they started Crunch Fund, and and I just really respected him as an investor and as a person, and uh, so so that's who I ended up coming and joining. Yeah, it's it sounds like an amazing part of a journey that probably brings together all the skills that are necessary for an investor. And affords you the ability to be able to to sort of leverage a lot of relationships that you've built over the years. How have you chosen to to focus what you're looking for in terms of companies? You know, are you are you looking for areas that you know resemble the areas where you worked, or are you trying to approach it more from a general point of view? What is it that really draws you to the early stage companies that you do look at for for serious investment? And maybe you can give sort of the top three things that founders can consider when they're looking to, to talk to you? Well, as, as far as um, where, where I ended up in, in a fund, I, I'm really fortunate to, to be in a generalist fund because it's everything that I loved about being at TechCrunch and being at Y Combinator in the role that I'm in right now, which is I can work with a company who, you know, is a, pure consumer play to, you know, something that is launching satellites into space, to hardware, to software, to a, you know, deep enterprise company. And that was something that I was fortunate enough to do before and and I'm able to do now. And as far as which kinds of founders that that I'm looking for, I mean, it's really about 
people who are, you know, mission driven, they're passionate about what they're doing. They have found a, a big market that they're tackling. And, you know, and as far as the early stage goes, you know, do, you know, do we think the money that, that they're raising will bring them to the next milestone? And the way that we work inside of Crunch Fund is, is saying, you know, will somebody, while we could see maybe all of those things, somebody in, inside our team has to be super excited about it because they want to, we want to always have someone who like wants to raise their hand and be like, yeah, I want to help them when they, when they ask for something. Yeah, no, that makes sense as a passion behind a deal. If there's no passion. It's very hard to overcome the really difficult times when, when, when founders are asking for support and, and, you know, you're probably at both at a, a very critical time in the company and you need to spend a lot more time. Um, if you walk through some of the things that, you know, like if you look back, um, and think about what Crunch Fund will be five years from now, what do you think that the opportunity is for a U.S. based fund to go global? Um, you know, you've, you've done a lot of events abroad, um, mm-hmm. as part of your years at TechCrunch. And, you know, the, the U.S. VC industry has a lot of opportunities, you know, not just from in terms of, 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 um, national expansion, but also in terms of international expansion. And then on top of that, there is opportunities around building out support platforms the way that some funds have done, you know, like Andreessen and, and first round walk us through kind of what the, in, in your, in your view, your ambition is for the next five years in terms of, of the crunch fund brand. Well, we've already begun actually uh, building out some of the a support platform. I mean, we're, we're a small fund and we're, we're early stage. Um, but we, we've started to build out some services around storytelling because that's often where people come to us, um, where some of our expertise really lies. So, you know, whether it be telling your story to your customers or your community or to the investors at your, at your next stage when you need to fundraise again. Um, and so, so we've taken some time and built out some, some services around that for our companies, whether it be uh, setting them up for their first Facebook ad or... Um, you know, a, a video that they need for, for something or uh, even just their their headshots for their website. Like we've got that for them. And um, and then we've also got uh, some some of the, the early like, how do you think about PR and how you want to make that plan for your company um, and think about that from from a, a, a further view? I think that Founders, when they're at the early stage, first of all, confuse what is news. Because <laughs> what's something that might be news to them is not necessarily news to a journalist. And and just what their plan is um, for the year. And so having those kinds of resources available to them, uh, we we pay people to to you know to help them out with that. And that's you know and that's free for our, our companies to use. So as far as those kinds of services, there's that. Um, we have invested in a, in a few international companies. Um, I believe we have one in London. Uh, we have one in Mexico and one in Argentina. What, what is it in terms of the fund itself expanding, not so much in international investments from the U.S., but in terms of the brand expanding, having opening offices elsewhere? Well, we don't have any plans to open offices elsewhere at the moment, you know, but one would never rule out something five years down the road. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, the the, um, the ecosystem in, in the Valley is matured, obviously, in the last 30, 40 years to a point where the rest of the world compares it. And you've been... In, in the UK and you've been across all the different areas that TechCrunch covered, which, which geographies do you admire the most as up and coming that um, maybe US investors that aren't as internationally focused uh, are, are missing out on? I think the two most are Stockholm and Paris. And I never would have said Paris a year ago, but for some reason they finally like have got their act together and it's really cool 
because there's amazing founders to be found anywhere in the world. And it's really just about, do they have an ecosystem to, to help them get to the next level? Cause you, you know, you can go to any small city in the United States or, or in Europe or, or anywhere really. And you can find people to probably give you seed funding. And the question is, if you're looking at a venture backed business, where do you go from there and how do you get to that, that next stage? And I think that's something that these, that, that really needs to be thought about um, when you think about these ecosystems that, that are out there is what can support it. And oftentimes it's, you know, it's a successful company that has exited and creates more founders that can be supported by, you know, the ones that, that made their money in the, in the first exit. Uh, that's, that's certainly the case. Um, it's universities that are around there um, that, that have people who, who think in, in creative ways and, you know, and want to start something new. Um, but yeah, I think that those are, are big parts of the recipe to, to be able to get to the next stage. Otherwise, you know, there's, there's some where you can get so far in, in the geography that you're in. And, and unfortunately I think sometimes you have to, to move to, to get to the next step. But those people that do do that, I feel like are still so connected to where they began that I think we'll see them coming back to, you know, if they, if they move to the Valley um, for the next stage of their company, I think we'll see them as they grow, come back to, to where they started and really give back in that, in that space. So if we go into your experience with dealing with founders pitching in events in Europe, you know, Paris mm-hmm. or, or the Nordics and then pitching in, in San Francisco, uh, one of the one of the criticisms people have is in general is that the the founders outside of the valley are of some sort of different DNA, and you know I find that it's an unfair criticism because you know I, I work w- with a lot of the founders here and I and I know them very well in insofar as their capabilities, but in your experience from having seen the, those differences, if we were to rule out anything having to do with the DNA but rather focus on sort of maybe presentation style or, or focus on maybe the points in presentations that are perhaps less accentuated. What would be the top three, let's say, um, lessons that you would share with founders from outside of the Valley that they need to crack in order to really connect with the Valley investor? Well, I think that one of the big things um, to connect with the Valley style investor is when you have something that is great, don't be afraid to share it. Um, I found, especially uh, when I've worked with pitches in European countries, um, that people will downplay their successes. (laughs) And in America... (laughs) They, the opposite happens, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, you know, in order to kind of come to this like happy medium, like go ahead, be proud of what you've done, and you know, and share it with with great confidence and sometimes you know hoopla <laughs> around it. Um, I think that that's that's one of the things, and I think regardless of your geography, you just have to know your numbers. You have to know everything about you know, whether they are customers or users or whatnot, you need, you just need to know everything backwards and forwards about your business. Um, because I think that alone inspires a lot of confidence in anybody who's considering, uh, investing in you. Yeah. Okay. So confidence and numbers. Confidence and numbers. Yeah. There's a a third one that I want to see if, if you agree with here, which is how to generate FOMO. And it is a, in effect, the combination of the first two points you made. Mm-hmm. But is there some other element to FOMO that that you've seen in the Valley that people really do well that that rest of the world um, founders probably ha- have yet to crack? I don't know that it's necessarily has to do with founders from the rest of the world versus founders in the Valley. I think creating FOMO when you're putting together a round always has to do with you have to have that first commitment, right? Mm-hmm. 
And that first commitment creates FOMO. It all of a sudden it's, you know, the, the train is on the tracks and it started moving and it's only going to pick up speed. So getting over that hurdle to getting that first commitment of money in is, is really what begats all the rest, mm. I think. Okay. So, and, and that's as far as FOMO goes, I, th- I think that's, that's what creates it the most because then everybody starts talking about the deal and, you know, what do they know that I don't kind of thing. That's, that's the, the, the thing that, that creates all of the, now I want to meet with those people kind of thing. And how have you encouraged or discouraged founders to talk about that that first potential interested party? Because, you know, there's multiple ways of of tackling that. You know, on the I don't disagree that a large part of them can be momentum if you if you want to re rebadge momentum. Like investor mm-hmm. investor momentum is clearly a huge creator of FOMO. I mean there's I've heard yeah. other variants of FOMO creators, you know, having to do with the, the market, you know, obviously, uh, somebody who's in a great background team and is in a specific market could do it. But let's focus oh, on, sure. on that specific point you brought up. The subtlety and the risk of signaling who that investor might be, partially because there might be opinions about that investor or it might not actually, it might backfire. So how do you suggest for founders to be able to navigate that, that process of both signaling momentum by having that commitment, but also not shooting themselves in the foot? Well, I think that, that the first thing you have to do is is step back and say to yourself, no matter who it is, and that no matter what part of your investment it is, is do I want to be working with these people for an extended period of time? Because, you know, the, you always have to look at it as I'm going to be doing this for the next 10 years. Now, you know, we're we're investors in Airbnb. Like, are, are they calling us and asking us for stuff now? No. Um, but you know, you, your, your company at different stages needs, needs different things. And you do really lean on those early investors to, you know, help you get introductions for your next round or, you know, maybe help you with introductions, uh, to people you're going to hire or to the press or different things like that. So I think you have to actually take a step back before you even talk about this momentum and say, do I want to be sell a piece of my business to this firm, this person, whatever. And if you feel good about that person or that firm, then chances are there are a lot of other people that feel the same way. So if your gut is telling you that this is the right person to partner with, I don't think you should be concerned that other people aren't going to feel similarly to you Hmm. because you want to create the syndicate of, of people around you who are investing in your company, especially in that early stage, that are like-minded with you in what your vision is. And that takes a little bit of time. You know, that doesn't happen on one meeting. It, you know, it, I'm not saying you have to go for months and, and, you know, and meet people for, you know, over huge, long, extended periods of time. But, you know, you should meet them more than once and, and really know, like, hey, do, you know, is this the person I want to call when I have a problem? Is this the person I want to call when I have a success? And are they going to be there? And and I think that if you've answered those questions, then you've answered the the rest as far as, like, are the people who will come along with them the kind of people that, that I want? Or do, do I have to worry about signaling that way? Yeah. No, that makes sense. All right. So now let's ask some out-of-the-blue questions. If you could change one thing about your life instantly, what would it be? Oh, that I would have endless energy. <laughs> I'm just coming off of being sick. And so I'm like, oh, man, if I can just sleep and have, like, endless energy during the day. I would also remove my commute. <laughs> remove your commute. Well, hyperloop yeah. might make that possible. Where, oh, are, you, where I, are you commuting from, by the way? I, I commute from um, from down in, in the, the peninsula up to San Francisco. And so, you know, there are days that I spend, you know, three hours in the car. Although at that, at that I say um, between podcasts and books. Uh, I feel like I've I've got a handle on at least getting something out of it. <laughs> Have you seen any of the um, Tesla driverless cars running around? 
Oh, I see that kind of stuff all the time because they they all go up and down 280, which is my my freeway. Um, Tesla, Google, all of them, they're all there. Because I haven't, I mean, I haven't spotted one here in the UK yet. I've seen them in 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 California, but I've been tempted to see if if I could spot one next time I go to California. Um, all right. yeah, drive on 280 between you know go between like Mountain View and uh, Mountain View Los Altos in San Francisco. And you'll see you'll see him there, Robot along with the Apple buses. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We look back now at slavery and are appalled and shocked. What do you think people will look back at fifty years from now and be shocked and appalled by? The addictive things put into uh, social apps, the addictive hooks mm. in social apps. I think they will be appalled by that. Mm. That's a very good point. We had Tristan Harris, who's a design ethicist who we had a good chat on the podcast a while ago, who talks about um, a coalition of, of startups that are actively making a point to solving that problem because it is such a huge issue. And, you know, it's interesting to hear that that's one you flagged. Do you guys make investments with that in mind? I don't know that we've talked about that as a partnership um, at, at this point. I think it's really just coming to light now just because we've got – 10 years on Facebook and on uh, Twitter and, and, you know, we look at Snapchat and, and Instagram and things like that, that we've got enough history in now that, that I think it's just starting to come to light. Mm. And, and it's, it's tough when you're thinking about that as, as a success for, you know, for what a, a social or a consumer business is right because yeah. you need the eyeballs yeah. on on what you've made and and so I'm not quite certain what the answer is to that yet but it's, it's something I'm I'm researching and exploring. Yeah, it's definitely tricky because as an investor, you definitely like the up and to the right, but you of also course. you know have a conscience and say, wait a second, this 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 is probably not this extent. So it's a very good one to bring up. And I, and, you know, and and honestly, like none of these guys were sitting in their dorm rooms saying like, I want to make people addicted to, <laughs> you know, they were just trying to solve a problem for themselves. Right. Yeah. And this is the, this is just something that, that we're between having, you know, smartphones and these social apps. Like we're, we're just kind of uncovering this and learning this now. Yeah. And I, I think about it a lot when I look at, you know, teenagers. And so coming back to my education, you know, Genesis there and, and how children's brains evolve and their, you know, how their social beings are made and where this kind of fits into all of that is, is something that, that I think about a lot. Mm. Well, thanks for that. Uh, I think it's something we're all going to have to think about as we both look at investments, but also as founders building companies to reflect on the addictiveness and the impact that those uh, features can potentially have. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, Susan. It was a great chat um, and it was hopefully something that you enjoyed and look forward to seeing you when we're over in the West Coast in the fall. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.